0: On the morning of May 14, 1988, Amori Rivera, a young man from Puerto Rico, photographed a giant disc, followed and circled by two jet interceptors. What makes the sensational pictures even more interesting is Rivera's claim that he had contact with the occupants of this UFO.
1: I think we're good, I think we're rolling, so uh, Chad, thanks for taking time to, to hang out here on the Aquarium Drunkard transmissions podcast.
0: Of course, happy to be
1: on it. We are gathered here today to uh, discuss a very important topic, which is the 1985 movie uh, Euphoria. Uh, or, or do you, how how do you pronounce how do you pronounce this movie? The, the title. Um, yeah, well, it's definitely spelled out UFO Ria. I guess that's <laughs> right. well, kind of like tongue and cheek spelling, but I th- um, I think Euphoria definitely is definitely the intended pronunciation. Yeah, um, so for, for listeners that don't know what exactly this is, it's a 1985 science fiction comedy, and it's starring Cindy Williams and Fred Ward and Harry Dean Stanton, and it was written and directed by this guy named John Binder, who, I looked him up on IMDB, and it seems like his best known credit is a a TV show called The Lazarus Man, which was like a western from the 1990s that did not run very long, so, um. Chad, had you ever had you ever seen this movie?
0: No, I had never heard of it until um, I saw you post about it and shared the YouTube link.
1: So it's 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 uh, the movie. It came out in 1985, as we mentioned, and it was originally. I guess I I I don't know how often this happens for you, but like I'll watch something and then I'll spend. You know, like forty-five minutes, uh, deep diving on it, like going down Wikipedia rabbit holes and stuff. So that's definitely what happened with uh, Euphoria. Um, so, yeah. So it was it was finished in 1981, but uh, the studio shelved it until 1985, when it was released as a very small theatrical run, and it didn't do well in theaters. Promptly vanished. Eventually, they screened it on cable television in 1986. And then they released it on VHS in 19, 1987. But that's it. So if you want to watch this movie, you have to watch it on YouTube, which is what Chad and I did. And it's going to be uh, uh, embedded with this podcast on com. So you can head over there to watch this movie. But um, yeah, it it it's, a, it's kind of a strange and I think excellent movie. I really enjoyed this movie. What did you think about it, Chad?
0: I loved it. Um, it was so much fun. Uh I obviously I had no idea what to expect. Um you definitely um coupled it with some really great
1: uh critic's quotes. Yeah. Uh, and
0: <laughs> you know, never turn away from anything that has Harry Dean Stanton in it. Well, well uh, right, absolutely. Um, and uh yeah, so I just I just kinda dived in and, and I don't regret a second of it.
1: Did you did you struggle at all with the sort of the quality of the rip that is available on YouTube because it it doesn't look good and it also doesn't sound great? There's kind of like <laughs> an an, anno- an annoying hum.
0: Yeah, no, it doesn't sound great, but I feel like that's that's the way it's meant to be watched. And um, sure, and no, I loved kind of like you were watching like a kind of like shitty old VHS copy of it. It really kind of. Set the tone for that there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, I hope um, that I hope that also, if they if they ever if they ever actually properly reissue it or anything, I hope that they include uh i um, like in like the bonus features, like the shitty YouTube stream that you can you can watch like on a second disc or something. I think that would be that'd be good right. for preserving its uh its sort of uh late night uh, like public access or, or late night cable sort of feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, like, kind of perfect setting, I guess it was um, this past Sunday, or, or maybe it was Saturday, but um, it just got me thinking, you know, a, a lot of us are, are stuck at home, and kind of trying to, like, mount our, our Netflix, Netflix queues, or whatever streaming services we have, sometimes the best things are just a, a random YouTube link that your friend shares.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: and it was just like, yeah, it's just, you know, almost kind of just like tuning into some like weirdo channel, stumbling upon something, and that ends up being the best thing you could possibly watch in that moment.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of our social media feeds more or less uh, serving that purpose right now. Like serving as these sort of weird, random, it's close as we can come to just organic uh, recommendations, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, and this was definitely, I think, for me, more on brand than on anything uh, you know an algorithm could have come up with.
1: Yeah, well, it's a it's uh, a it's a movie about Harry Dean Stanton uh, as like a swindler preacher, and there's UFOs, yeah. and there's Waylon Jennings music, yeah. and it checks all the boxes. It checks is Cindy Williams like th- these are the Chad requisites for any 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 project. Well, <laughs> so it's it's funny that you brought up. Uh, streaming services, you know, because uh, even before the the quarantine, you know, I think everybody has that has had that feeling of scrolling Netflix and just like seeing the same things that are always on there, or a bunch of new things that none of them look even remotely interesting. And it's it's just funny that even with all of the choices that are available to us, um, there's sort of a desire for this sort of thing, which is not, whatever you can't get, that's what you want to watch the most, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, it's funny, because I, I kind of stumbled upon this through a, a a streaming service, actually, in a, in a roundabout way, um, Criterion Channel, which has come up on the podcast a couple times, William Tyler brought it up, and... I think Justin and I have talked about it on another episode, but there's a they put a collection of '70s style icons on their site, and uh, there's a film in there called Welcome to L.A. from 1986, and it's got Keith Carradine and Sissy Spacek and Harvey Keitel, and it was kind of like a uh, it was helmed by this guy Alan Rudolph, um, and he was an associate of, of Robert Altman, and and the music was done by. Uh, somebody named Richard Baskin and Richard Baskin is it was looking at his IMD page that led me to euphoria because he does the music for that as well he also did Barbara Streisand and he did, he, he did, produced the Broadway album for her he worked on Nashville as well and uh, yeah in the movie he I don't know if I'm supposed to like his music in welcome have you ever seen welcome to LA
0: I've not seen Welcome to L.A., but I, I love that you brought up Alan Rudolph, because he actually did kind of come to mind watching this.
1: While um, watching, yeah, while, while you were watching Euphoria?
0: Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Welcome to L.A., and that sounds awesome. But um, I'm a big Robert Altman fan, and um, I've known Alan Rudolph as someone who's always kind of been, I don't, I don't know whether it's been like a DP or associate director on a lot of his stuff. But he has this one movie from the mid 80s called Trouble in Mind that also stars Keith Carradine as well as, um, Chris Christofferson. Hmm. And it, it very much for me touched a lot of the same kind of tones as Euphoria, um, where it sort of lives in this contained world and, um, cuts this kind of really earnest, melodramatic, um, I don't know, I guess you would call it an ethos, or at least it's in a lot of the characters, um, which just troubled people and then just kind of undercuts it with these elements of science fiction um, or surrealism or futurism. Um, Marianne Faithfull actually did all the music for for Trouble in Mind. Um, So there's definitely a music through line for all these. But um, yeah, Alan Rudolph definitely felt like a touchstone there.
1: Yeah, so so in in Welcome to L.A., which is sort of about this like seedy, you know, like L.A. entertainment uh, sort of sexual politics of the nineteen seventies thing. Um, the the guy Richard Baskin, he he plays this artist who's sort of a celebrity musician. He's kind of this. I'm glad you mentioned a melo, you know melodrama because like that's what you have in that movie. He's kind of singing all of the songs uh, of the main character, who's the sort of like kind of Tom Waitsy guy but um the the recordings that Richard Baskin does for Welcome to l a they show him in the studio a lot, and it's like very orchestrated and he's got this very put on voice where the vocals are high up in the in the mix. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to think that the music that he was making was really good or really bad um for the purpose of the of the narrative. I don't know what it was supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be a little over the top because they always kind of um they always kind of focus with the, the main character just playing the piano versus these like saxophones and strings and full rock band orchestrations that's going on with, with Baskin's character. But but looking at his page, I was like, oh, you, Euphoria, that sounds interesting because I like UFOs a lot and um, I'm interested in that sort of stuff. It took me like three, three seconds on the Wikipedia page to be like, I have to watch this movie. And uh, because we live in the age that we do, I can just pop over to YouTube and watch it. So I wonder, I wonder if, if for, for, uh, the sort of to intrigue listeners, how, how would you, how would you sum euphoria up? What is, what is euphoria about in your opinion?
0: Well, it's about, um, it's about a supermarket cashier named Arlene, um, who's a believer in UFOs and that Adam and Eve and Jesus were all astronauts of some sort. And, um, she gets tangled up with actually who we initially meet, and in the Waylon Jennings uh, scored opening credits. Uh, who's Sheldon Bart, and he's kind of a, a Waylon lookalike, um, sort of a deadbeat, just kind of drives around with a, a six pack of Budweisers at all times. Yeah, he's, um, he's,
1: he's on cruise control with his like his his boots yeah. on the dash.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, you know, stops in the gas station and like breaks into the change machine to <laughs> to pay- um, and of course, he catches up with um, Harry Dean Stan's character, whose name is Brother Bud, um, who's kind of just a, a con man, always looking for the next score. This is definitely familiar terrain for Harry Dean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's sort of the snake oil salesman revival preacher. And um, Arlene kind of has this prophecy that this UFO is coming to this this small town they're all in. And um, she develops something of a a cult following. And Harry Dean Stan's character, Brother Bud, um, you know, he sees the opportunity in that and um, gets them both roped in this new UFO religion scheme, which combines kind of country gospel music um, and Arlene's proclamation that a UFO will soon appear um, obviously for, for Brother Bud, it's more of a cash grab. Um, while for Arlene, it's, it's, you know, a really sincere kind of existential thing. Yeah. And, um, Fred Ward's character sort of gets caught in the middle there because, uh, you know, you could, you believe that he, he feels a lot for Arlene, but, um, he also sees this as, his opportunity to kind of sing country music and become a star. People immediately, you know, really take to his part in the in the kind of crazy circus that they start putting on.
1: Yeah. But it's also, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> <a> summation. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, I mean, that, yeah, that's pretty much what happens in, in the movie. Uh, and, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, I mean, it's just kind of like, I, I don't feel like they make movies like this very much anymore. Um it's like a small movie, not a lot of things happen, um very dialogue heavy, but I was just really struck by how uh how genuine it was, how earnest it was, how affecting it was. And it's really like the chemistry between uh between Sheldon uh and and Arlene is is really fantastic right like it's it's it was kind of like mind-blowing how uh how wonderfully they 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 wrote their dialogue and and how well both of them play off of each other um it's like weirdly it kind of it kind of takes all of these characters all of which are kind of uh unlikely or strange or i mean potentially Uh, delusional, but it it takes them kind of seriously in a weird way. Like even Harry Dean Stanton, feel free to correct me if you think that this is wrong. But one of the things that was really interesting to me was that Harry Dean Stanton, he's kind of the closest the movie comes to having a villain. You know what I mean? Because he's he's like more cynical. He's sort of on the take. He's not interested in any of this for kind of altruistic reasons. But the film gives even him a little bit of, like, grace and kind of, like, understanding. Did, did you feel that way about Harry's character?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, It almost, like, it almost kind of works as a stage play in that sense, too, where it's, like, there's, there's a real intimacy to, to everyone, and um, each scene almost kind of feels like it plays out like a vignette. Yeah. Uh, with, like, and as, like, one scene comes to an end It's like usually on some really poignant line that like might, might be said over some sort of like pedal steel or something, which is kind of goes back to that sort of like melodramatic thing, but yeah, it feels really earnest and um, it it does feel like it just, it's so self-contained. And yeah, I mean, absolutely about, about the brother Bud character. Um, He's, he's not all bad and no point did I really find myself actively disliking him? No. You
1: You. kind of root for him. He's got this whole like car running scheme that kind of like, I, the closest I'll come to sort of criticizing this movie is that the car running scenes, they kind of get lost in the shuffle of everything. Um, yeah. There's this whole subplot about them, you know, trying to trying to steal cars, and and it does it, it it's a big part of the the plot mechanics, you know. So it, it it comes up and it's featured very prominently, but it's it's kind of in a weird way where and maybe this just owes to the quality of the YouTube stream or whatever. I wasn't a hundred percent sure what was going on with the cars, but I figured it would like I knew enough to kind of just let it roll along, you know.
0: Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you definitely just
1: roll with that one. Uh so, so this movie was um you know a flop and it did not it did not get a lot of attention. Uh one of the things that you you already referenced was when I posted this on Twitter I I posted like an old poster that had some great press quotes and then I found this uh this Ebert review which was really fantastic and I want to read quickly a little a little clip from it. Uh Ebert said Uh, This is one of those movies in which you walk in not expecting much and then something great happens and you laugh and you start paying more attention and then you realize that a lot of great things are happening, that this is one of those rare movies that really has it. Euphoria is not just... (laughs) Euphoria. Euphoria is not just another witless Hollywood laugh machine, but a movie with intelligence and a sly, sardonic style of humor. You don't have to shut down half your brain in order to endure it. Um... I thought that was pretty much right on the money. That's it's perfect quarantine viewing for those reasons. Um going in not really expecting anything. Um I don't feel like we do that a lot with movies in general, right? Whether it's something that's on the Criterion Channel or something that you, you know, uh like understand you're supposed to watch or something that is new in the theaters. Like generally speaking, just on a personal level, how often do you go into a movie not really having any real idea what is, uh, what's about to happen?
0: Not enough. Um, definitely not enough. And I was glad to do it this time. Um, because yeah, I mean, Ebert as, as he most often did kind of hits it on the head there. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't expect, I just, you know, I take a lot of your recommendations to heart and, um, you know, definitely just looked up my alley, but uh, I had no idea what to expect, or if it was. You know, I try not to um, not finish things, even if I'm not enjoying them. Um, but it was just late, and uh, and I turned it on, and you know, it was it was almost over too soon. Yeah, um, I don't think it's something you get lost like in.
1: I don't think it's a very long movie. I don't, I don't actually, I don't actually know how long it actually is. I should have written that down, but it's not particularly that's long. long. No,
0: maybe it like comes in almost shy of like an hour and a half.
1: Yeah. 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 So you mentioned that um one when I posted this on Twitter a few folks reached out and and you know commented. Uh one of the things that a couple people pointed out was that um that the movie has always felt to them sort of tied to Repo Man, the 1984 film that of course Harry Dean Stanton's in along with Emilio Estevez and um sure. I think financed or produced by Michael Nesmith from the Monkees, one of always one of my favorite uh kind of like weird facts, but um huh. I not know that. Yeah, yeah, I think he financed it and director Alex Cox uh hasn't made a ton of other movies aside from Repo Man, but it is certainly a cult classic. Um I saw it most recently wow. in Tucson at a at a theater down there called The Loft, um which is one of the best art house theaters in, in Arizona, for sure. But um, uh, did, did this movie remind you of Repo Man at all? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it definitely
0: has that kind of 80s America, you know, slight paranoia, um, where it's, it's just all kind of, like, tangled up. And, um, you know, Reagan's America and um, just, like, the, that big consumer error and kind of Cold War yeah somehow subterfuged with ufo paranoia
1: yeah U- um, ufos play in both movies uh pretty prominently
0: yes for sure <laughs> um yeah it de- they definitely have um a similar feel also we obviously a very music-centric film though a very different type of music um yeah and also you know going back to that alan rudolph movie trouble in mind um which also just seems to sort of live in its own world. It's this kind of like futuristic metropolis. And um, Chris Christopherson is a former policeman who, who recently got out of prison um, for a murder rap that he probably didn't commit. Um, and it's just, um, it, it puts real people in a, what feels like a kind of sartorialized, but also like, lovingly meticulous reflection of, of the society in which the film was made in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing that, I don't know how it how it compares to that one, but I know that in comparison to Repo Man, uh, Euphoria is, I think it's a lot sweeter than Repo Man, which, I, I love that movie, but it's not, it's, it's a little bit, you know, cynical, too. Um, and it's I think... Elaborate you you get some of the touches of the cynicism of this era, you know, like Sheldon Bard's character is very much sort of like that, um, I, I guess, I guess almost sort of a, uh, like leftover from the 70s, this sort of, uh, you know, I'm, the movie was 1981, the 70s probably weren't over until, you know, almost the mid 80s anyway, but, um... Yeah, I, I I like that he's kind of got that like cynical edge, but then it's balanced out by by Arlene, who is just this like kind of like comedic ray of light in this movie. Cindy Williams is, is so good in this movie. She is absolutely yeah. charming from the from the moment it starts to the moment it ends. And and I think that it's interesting that I don't want to spoil too much, but like it's not really about whether or not she is correct, you know what I mean, in like the UFO arriving or not, and that's a that's something that that Ebert brings up in his review too. like it this is about how people get through the day, you know, and it's like how people imagine better things in in the world. Um, and I thought that was a big part of it. Y- you mentioned that it reminded you of a little bit of Neil young's human highway, and here's where. Uh, I'm going to reveal that I I don't think I've ever actually watched all of Human Highway. I've seen like lots of clips from Human Highway. How does that hold up as an entire movie?
0: Um, I think pretty fantastically. Um, Similar, it's one that's in need of a VHS YouTube link for sure. Um, That's probably the ideal way to watch it. Um, I did actually have the fortune to see that one in theaters at um, IFC Center a few years back nice I'm DVD and I think I've rewatched it once. Um, that one, you know, is like probably a, a bit closer to, um, to repo man. And in, in the sense that it's, um, or maybe cl- closer to trouble in mind in the sense that it, it really takes place in a, a more fictitious kind of setting. Right. Um, but it has this this sweetness about it, and about just these this kind of like these small town people who are just trying to get by. And going back to what you said about Arlene, where it doesn't really the movie's not really about whether or not she's right about her premonition. It's a movie about about faith, about like what you could believe in or who you could believe in. Um, and Human Highway definitely possesses a lot of those traits. Um, it also has this just sort of like nuclear wasteland subterranean setting to it. Um, but Neil Young's character in it, uh, the name of which escapes me is also, is just like, he's that very earnest, um, almost like foolishly. So almost to a fault, um, where he just like doesn't, can't really see the wrong in people. Um, and, um, it's, it is an incredibly sweet movie. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was brought to mind for sure.
1: Well, I'm going to add that to to the list, and uh, and I want to say another interesting thing I think about Euphoria is you you mentioned the way that it is about faith and it's about believing and sort of what you can believe in. I really think that perhaps the thing that makes this movie so unlikely and so strange is that. Um, it's incredibly sweet and it's incredibly endearing, but I don't know if I would use the term naive to describe it. You know what I mean? Like it kind of, there are some side characters, uh, specifically, and I don't remember the name of this guy that one of the friends who's driving around with, uh, Sheldon in their weird car running scheme, um... And he kind of calls Sheldon out for the way he and brother Bud, you know, uh, kind of hoodwink people or try to um, kind of weaponize and, uh, and and swindle like true believers, you know. Um, uh-huh. But it also is it's it's kind of funny because Sheldon Bart's character, he's he's not a he's not like rosy eyed about things. He has good reason for being cynical too. And they kind of explain that too. So I really thought it was, I thought it was interesting the way it towed the line between sort of interrogating this idea of faith and examining the value of that idea. And it ends up ultimately giving the film like a poignancy that I think is a little bit surprising given it's just, you know, kind of comedic, uh, setup, you know?
0: For sure, yeah. Um, people are def- they're held accountable, and uh, that actually reminded me uh, I've one character that I feel like does that really well, and who I was really happy to see in that film is Hank Warden, um, who people might know either as depending on when you were born, as Mose Harper from The Searchers, or the um, waiter at the Great Northern in Twin Peaks.
1: Man, who, I was Borden. so excited when I saw him. Yeah
0: yeah and um he's just perfect in it um yeah anytime anyone sort of makes some sort of claim or there's there's some sort of calamity he's kind of there to be um I want to say just kind of like the judicious person in the situation yeah Um, the observer uh, yeah he's um he's the voice of reason a lot um and he just plays it perfectly you know just like pitch perfectly um similar to to his character in Twin Peaks that way where he just feels like he just shows up at the right time he, like he's mystically there he's um, yeah he's supposed to be there yeah
1: hey, he's almost like the he's almost like the Greek chorus for this movie and and for for uh, for Lynch you know what I mean right. uh, and it was awesome yeah. it was awesome that there that there were two Twin Peaks people in this movie yes very much so um, I don't know I, I I would love to hear what David Lynch thought about this, but uh I suppose he probably has had other things to talk about in interviews. But if I ever get a chance to talk with David Lynch, I'll ask him if he's ever. Seen- yeah,
0: I like he's had to have seen it.
1: I-, I think that the odds are good that he's at least seen it and uh at least once, and I would I would guess that he probably liked it, you know, just knowing how much he enjoys Harry Dean Stanton's uh work. Absolutely. Well, Chad, thanks for, for taking a few minutes to hop on the line and talk about this uh, uh, the first installment in the Aquarium Drunkard Movie Club. Um, I, I just made that up just now, but uh, whether or not we actually whether or not we actually start something like that, uh, I really do think that this is a pretty much perfect quarantine viewing. So thanks for thanks for chatting about it.
0: Yeah, happy to chat, man. Huh?